Welcome to Walls of Time, field interviews with the best in bluegrass. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Walls of Time bluegrass podcast. If you're a bluegrasser, this is a big week. I am in Raleigh, North Carolina. I am uh, at my Airbnb uh, recording the intro for this episode. Really excited because it's IBMA's World of Bluegrass 2023, and it's a big week. I'm involved with a couple different panels, so if you're at the World of Bluegrass Business Conference, be sure to say, hey, got some new stickers in, so if uh, you come see me, I'll have a sticker for you. So thanks for listening to the Walls of Time Bluegrass podcast. Hopefully uh, you are subscribed wherever you enjoy your podcasts, whether that is a Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play. Thanks for listening to the Walls of Time Bluegrass podcast. Not one, but two Bluegrass Music Hall of Famers on part one of our interview with Ken Irwin and Marion Leighton Levy, uh, two of the three founders of Rounder Records. We recorded this interview at IBMA's World of Bluegrass two years ago, had a lot of fun. We had a special guest uh, sitting in on the interview. You hear some asides from it every now and then. That'd be Mr. David Menconi. Uh, author of a new book about Rounder Records called Oh, Didn't They Ramble. Uh, so be sure to get your copy and learn all about the history of Rounder Records. On Wednesday, September the 27th, I'll be sitting in. Uh, so that's here uh, Wednesday of World of Bluegrass Week in Raleigh. I'll be sitting in on a really special panel about the history of Rounder Records And uh, it's uh, my honor and pleasure to be invited to be a part of this special event, celebrating one of the most historic record labels in bluegrass music, and one of the most unlikely as well, as you'll learn in part one of this interview with Ken Irwin and Marion Leighton Levy of Rounder Records. Their journey being part of the counterculture movement to being members of the Bluegrass Music Hall of Fame is so unlikely and so exciting as well. You'll learn a lot, not only about the record label business and what kind of goes on behind the scenes, but also the importance of sticking to your guns, following your passions, and not being afraid to take chances, uh, learn a lot of valuable lessons, and have a whole lot of fun with Ken Irwin and Marion Leighton Levy. And uh, yeah, be sure to check out the new book, Oh, Didn't They Ramble, about the history of uh, one of the most successful independent roots music labels of all time. Oh, let's uh, take a trip to Raleigh with Ken Irwin and Marion Leighton Levy right now. Sitting here with Ken Irwin and Marion Leighton Levy of uh, Rounder Records, uh, celebrating 50 years that is correct. Or 50, 50 years of bluegrass. Of bluegrass. Uh, officially 51 here in 2021. You guys were founded in 1970. That is correct. Um, how on earth did you guys decide to start a record label? Uh, shall we take turns on this, Ken? Well, if I start, it's going to take a long time. Because it's an unlikely yeah. <laughs> story. It's yeah. an unlikely story. I was um, hitchhiking back from the Galax Fiddler's Convention with um, a woman that I was uh, going out with. And we got picked up first by James Lindsay of the Mountain Ramblers and uh, his son. 
and we um, drove for a ways, and he dropped me off, and I got picked up by Ken and Sherry Davidson. Ken had founded Kanawa Records, who had um, they had put out two records by Clark Kessinger at the time, and Billy Cox and Franklin George, um, traditional um, American music, and um, named they, for Kanawa County, West yeah. Virginia, and they. Um, didn't want to see us hitchhiking at night, so they invited us to spend the night with them in Charleston, West Virginia, which we did. And we got up in the morning, and they asked if we had any plans, and we said no. So um, they said, why don't we go visit Clark Kessinger and Billy Cox, which we did and had uh, wonderful visits. And uh, at the end of the visit, they drove us out the next morning to the highway and let us off, and we continued our hitchhiking. And when I got back, I called up my roommate, Bill Nallen, and I said, hey, this guy started a record company, and he doesn't know too much about album design, and he didn't have any liner notes on his records. Um, Why don't we start a record company? And there was nobody to tell us not to, and that was the shortened version of um, how we got started. It's a shortened version, but it actually took a little longer than that, because that was sort of like, um, that was sort of the germ, the inception of the idea of Rounder. Um, but And after that, it was mm, a, almost a couple of years, actually. And we didn't have an idea for naming it Rounder, and we still don't all agree or have the same memories of why we chose Rounder. I've heard about, there's about four or five different versions floating down there. (laughs) At at least, at least, but, but, um, but the ones that we do all agree on is that the Holy Motor Rounders figure in there and the fact that records are round. And um, in my case, and and I think that Ken and Bill also thought, thought this had the association of not just the role that rounders play in song, in bluegrass songs and old-timey songs, but also what rounders were in American folklore and in the history of American hobos and people riding freight trains across the country and stuff. In other words, you know, anyone who made the rounds. Anyone that's hitchhiking back from a fiddler's convention, right? Exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, and... You know, rounders are kind of outlaw romantics, and that was you guys. Yep. Yep. Well, you you mentioned some of the... We liked you calling us rabble rousers before. Mm-hmm. Rounders are definitely rabble rousers. The original bluegrass rabble rousers sitting right here. <laughs> <laughs> we hope to live up to that. What were some ways that, you, that Rounder Records in the beginning hoped to raise good sorts of trouble and be rabble rousers and kind of push push the buttons and break the rules in the right places and all that good stuff. In some ways, our aspirations were large and at the same time modest. Um, and, 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 and I like the way you put that in terms of, you know, raising, raising good trouble or something, because of course it, you know, sounds like, you know, um, the late 
uh, Senator John Lewis, yes, you know, talking about good trouble, because it's very, I mean, that is kind of, in a way, what Rounder was, uh, you know, had as its aim. There was a lot of really great music that we had fallen in love with by going to bluegrass festivals and folk festivals and blues festivals, and there was a real void. I mean, there was a library label, like Folkways, but we were a little bit ahead of most of the others, and County did great stuff with with what they were doing, but we always had a broader notion of the music that we wanted to, and our goals were at least twofold, um, um, preserving music that w- had previously been unavailable for a long time, if not ever, and then um, second of all, people who were continuing that music, and that could be younger people, or it could be people like Joe Val, who were sort of second generation bluegrass, um, but yes, that was kind of the good trouble that we wanted to wanted to get into. Um, and one thing that made Rounder unique, especially at that era, is you guys, from the get-go, weren't a exclusively bluegrass label. You were open to all sorts of forms of music, which nowadays seems kind of normal. But at that time, right. you know, a lot of those labels were, were pretty isolated in the styles of music they would present. What made you guys want to be able to present different forms of music? Well, we liked different types of music. We were hearing different types of music. We were located in the Boston area, and there was uh, the Boston Blues Society bringing in some of the great blues artists from the uh, recorded in the late 20s and 30s. And um, after that, um, there was the Boston Area Friends of Bluegrass and Old Time Country Music, bringing in primarily bluegrass. Um, There were clubs that were bringing in uh, folk music. We had um, the Club 47, one of the most famous uh, folk music clubs, was um, very active in that time. It was the um, you know, the late 60s that we're talking about, mid to late 60s, when um, Bill and I were undergraduates at Tufts University, that we we were frequenting the Club 47 on a fairly regular basis, sometimes two or three nights a week. So we were hearing all kinds of music where some of the other labels were more regional and might not have been exposed to as many types of music. But I also think that that most of those labels were actually founded with one specific type of music in mind. And um, I, I think that partly because of, as Ken was saying, our consciousness, I mean, it's like we heard a broad range of music, but we also loved all of that music. And we didn't um, necessarily distinguish between all of them, even though everybody else did back then as people, as you noted correctly, um, don't do as much anymore. Um, Good music is good music, and that was kind of how we felt about it. But most people were sort of of segmented, as you said. It's like they liked old-time music or they liked bluegrass music. I mean, and, and over the years, people would say, oh, there's Rounder, that little folk label from Cambridge. And at the same time, you know, at that George Thorogood would be having his biggest record for us that we'd ever done, which was certainly not folk music. Uh, or people who would hear Allison and, and say, oh, yeah, Rounder, it's that bluegrass label. And meanwhile, you know, there's all this other, you know, like our best-selling music at that time was, except for Allison, not bluegrass, it was blues. Yeah. Um, so over the years, it was just like, well, that's all right. People can think of us 
whatever way, you know, <laughs> they think of us and, you know, keep on putting out good music. And there, there were segments of the music lovers and press who would know of one area. So some people would know that we had put out albums about coal mining and other people would know about our reggae releases and others would know about blues and we had we were one of the major labels putting out Cajun and Zydeco music. Um, we put out uh, a number of polka records and won a number of Grammys in that area. And an um, entire series of Cape Breton fiddle music. One, which nobody else did. One thing that's unique too is at that time there would be some labels that, you know, maybe pre-rounder, there would be some labels that would consider putting out different genres, but frequently they might have a different sticker or a different, you know, subset of the label. Your guys is all said rounder, all had mm-hmm. the same label stamp of approval yeah. on those projects versus uh, a big corporate umbrella that might have their blues under have one color sticker on it. Their country would have a different uh, label. Um, why did you think it was important to have all those forms of music under the same umbrella? I mean, later on there would be the different imprints, but for, for many decades it was all rounder. Why was that important? Um. It was important because it, it was all rounder music and we had all of the different series. Yeah, yeah. So the Zero Zero series was one type of music. The 1000 series was reissue music. The 2000 series was protest music. The 3000 series, uh, and blues, yes, blues. And the 3000 series was contemporary um, music, traditionally based sort of the 4000 series was protest music. 5,000 series was going to be ethnic music. So in other words, in 6,000 uh, Cajun music, 7,000 was the Cape Breton series. So there was plenty of room <laughs> for like everything you could get your, your arms around. 8,000 children's. Exactly. Yeah. Kathy Fink. Mm-hmm. You said um, there was a lot of different type of music presented in the, the areas where you guys were living. Do you think that that is a, you know, a huge positive of being in a urban center like New England? I mean, you guys, you guys all originated from that New England area, right? Yes, but I grew up in the country. In the very, country. Very rural. Tiny, okay. tiny little town. What was your childhood like? It was rural poor. And I never really heard much music at all. Really? Um, except for country music. And maybe even a little bit of bluegrass, although I didn't know it was at the time. The first music that, the first record I ever heard, which I still remember to this day, was a Hank Williams 78 that had my buckets got a hole in it on one side and um, I'm so lonesome I could cry on the other side. So that was what the people where I grew up listened to and church music. I grew up as a Baptist in the country. So I'm the, the rounder who's not only the younger rounder, because I'm four years younger, and Ken and Bill were ahead of me, obviously, just finishing college when I was still an undergraduate, but they also were from urban and suburban backgrounds. We're still four years older than you are. Yeah, I know. I'm still trying to catch up. I'm still trying to catch up. 
What did your parents do, Mary? Um, what everybody did where I grew up, which is uh, um, kind of hard scrabble uh, in the summertime, blueberries. Um, my father was a guide to hunters and fishermen in the fall and in the springtime, worked for lumber companies in the wintertime. My, my mother worked at various factories, a sardine factory. Um, uh, there was a knitting factory. So... It's such a small area that there were very few, you know, very few jobs. So and it's then whatever around, was available. And then around Christmas time? Oh, and making wreaths around Christmas time that would be wow. sell, sold to wholesalers that would then be shipped to the city. Yeah. Wow. Did you hear of some people that grow up in that sort of environment and they either end up loving the outdoors or mm-hmm. I love the outdoors. You love the outdoors. Yeah. Cause yeah. some, some people it swings yeah. them the other way. Yeah. So you love the outdoors. I, which is not to say that I was not anxious to leave right away and become as sophisticated and urbanized. But, and, and in fact, I, I definitely did not feel understood by the, the people where I grew up. And in so far as I had goals, it was to, um, uh, read more books and to be, not have any uh, particular class. I didn't want to be from the class that I was from, but I didn't want to be suburban or middle class or upper class. I wanted to be day class A. <laughs> Although well, she didn't know the word. I did. The time. Oh, oh no, I yeah. certainly okay. did, Ken. I mean, from reading uh, Hemingway's uh, A Movable Feast when I was in high school. That was like the way to live, in my opinion. Um, and reading Russian novels and stuff like that. So no, day class A was definitely a word in my vocabulary. What Was that unusual in a hardworking rural community that you're reading Russian novels and wanting to go to college and it, especially as a female, yeah. wanted to pursue higher education, and yeah, the yeah. same for me. Particularly in in terms of wanting to leave the state that I grew up in, that was like practically unheard of. What no, state was that? Maine. In Maine. In Maine, wow. the no, the northernmost and the eastern. I grew up in the easternmost county in the United States, but um, yes, it was unusual. Um, and at the same time, you know, I was open to learning, and I mean, that's what I wanted to do: is just hear lots of music and read lots of books and have access to all of those libraries and bookstores. And that was unusual. But on the other hand, my fa- I was the first, of course, uh, generation to get a college education in my yeah. family. But my dad, who didn't finish high school, absolutely loved um, reading encyclopedias and reading dictionaries and learning about words and uh, encouraged me to read. So the your propensity for, for reading and, and literature... Goes you know, back to childhood. Goes back to childhood. Yeah. It wasn't something that, no. you know, an epiphany later on. No. Your, your dad, even though... Yeah. Yeah, okay. Even he, though he didn't have a, a, a high school education. It was all about learning. Yep. That's wonderful. Yeah. Did, did the pushback or the... The funny looks you got from the community make you even more passionate about going against what was, you know, kind of the norms in that community? It made me proud to be an outsider, which is another name for a rounder, I think, too. And so that was sort of part of what I thought of what rounder would be like. I got to ask, how does how does a, a, a girl from a, a, a rural 
hardworking community like that decide that they want to major in modern European history? Um, because of my love of Russian novels and, and uh, you know, wanting to live in, say, Paris in the 1920s. So, of course, it was a romantic, exotic uh, way of looking at the world, but it, it was also a way that was not classed and broken down the way the United States is. And I did realize when I was in high school just, you know, how much of um, uh, the, in this country, how many people were left out of the narrative. I mean, not just my people, obviously, but all of the people that we came to record on Rounder. I mean, the first time I heard Almeida Riddle, it's sort of like hearing old ballad singers from the Ozarks spoke to me not only about where I was from, but people who had been really left out. got a secret. My name is Santana Mullins, Daniel Mullins' wife, and for the last year, I've been stealing from him. Don't tell him, but I've been using a shampoo and conditioner from Samson's Hair Care. I noticed that even at the end of the day, Daniel's hair was still soft to the touch and smelled better than mine, so I had to sneak and give it a try, and I'm glad that I did. I have fallen in love It's the only brand of shampoo and conditioner I've found that holds their scent all day while leaving my hair feeling soft and well-nourished. If you want to see for yourself, visit samsonshaircare.com. Use code BLUEGRASS to save on your order. That's samsonshaircare.com, code BLUEGRASS. Ladies, be sure to buy your man Samson's shampoo and conditioner. You'll both thank me. I mentioned that, you know, you majored in modern European history. You majored in early childhood development. I majored in psychology mm-hmm. and then uh, graduate school was early childhood education. Graduate school. Oh, that was, and then um, child development and family relationships, and which changed in while I was in graduate school to human development and family studies. What got you interested in that field of study? Part of it was um, listening to a radio show when I was very young um, about the um, breaking moment for Sigmund Freud. I think the um, it was a book called A Far Country, and they were discussing that on on an interview on WMCA, I think it was, in in New York. And my brother had some um, emotional problems. And uh, between the two, I, you know, they sort of collided there and um, just became interested in, uh, in psychology. What was your childhood like? That's a pretty broad question. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Where did you grow up? What did your parents do? Okay. Um, I was born in New York City and um, lived on the uh, on the West Side. Um, Eight Thirty Eight Western Movie is what I called it. It was West End Avenue, and uh, then moved up at the age of four to White Plains, which is in Westchester, about twenty miles north. And then in um, fifth or sixth grade, I think it was sixth grade, moved to. Um, the Union Free School District Number Six in the town of Greenberg, um, which was the other side of the tracks from Scarsdale, um, 
And it good was, side or bad side of the tracks? Well, compared to Scarsdale, it was the bad side. <laughs> okay. Um, for, you know, it, depends, bad, it depends who's asking. Yeah. The but, bad side yeah. in Westchester yeah. is not very bad. Yeah. Right. <laughs> there, were, there were some areas, but it was, it was still a, a good side. Yeah. And um, so I, I grew up in um, definitely middle class. Um, my father was a writer. He was... Um, for the most part, freelance. He wrote a couple of novels early on um, in his life. Uh, I think he was the, um, pretty sure he was the editor of the um, newspaper um, at NYU. And he met my mother, who was a year younger, who was also working at the newspaper. And she wrote... Um, a book um, in the late 40s on um, practical birth control. No and, way. Yeah. Which, Especially you know, in the 40s. That's, yeah, that, I mean, that's that pretty might, revolutionary. That might have been the dime. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, she was... Um, a member a, of the League of Women's Voters. Yep. And we had a, um, a stamp that went out on every, ma- every piece of mail that said, Peace is the only shelter. Um, wow. That was an era of when people were very concerned and some people were building bomb shelters. And that was um, her response. And, um, and I think, Ken, you should also mention uh, Ken's dad, he not only wrote two novels in the 30s but they were they were Jewish and as we know the attitude toward Jewish people in uh in this country unless you happen to live in New York and even in New York so he changed his name so Ken became Ken Irwin but originally his dad um was not named Irwin changed his last name I could I could have been in Isaacs yeah Really? Yeah. Yeah. Your last name was it was No, my name his, my his name was father, never Isaacs. Yeah. My okay. father changed his name. Um, a professor at NYU suggested that since he was going into the literary field that he change his name that it might avoid um, considerable problems for him. So he changed his name before either my brother or I were born. Did he ever regret changing his name? I never heard him Although we did try other ones, he had uh, he had um, names um, uh, Kenneth Rogers. So, um, but again, all very waspy, right? right. And then uh, Anthony Ridge, my brother's middle name was Anthony, and we yeah. lived on Green Ridge Avenue in White Plains. So those are two of his um, other names. Um, and, and Ken's dad was so successful that he was the longtime. Uh, vice president of the Society of Magazine Writers wow. in the United States, and he, he That's did, amazing. and yeah. he did all of this out of his home office, and he edited. Part of the reason Ken was saying about all of the pseudonyms is he would edit an entire like medical issue of something and have separate articles with, written by these these different. That was names sort of his specialty. That was he to wrote dumb, all of dumb those. things down, like he would take a medical story and write it for Reader's Digest. Oh wow. That's and, amazing. Yeah, and he yeah. edited, um, he was the editor for various publications. Um, a real magazine, I remember, was one of them. And he wrote a lot for Pageant and Coronet, um, mentioned the Reader's Digest. Sort of the equivalent of Parade Magazine today. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Um, and and he, he, he had the luxury 
of after, after a while, since he was a very good at this, that he would come up with ideas for articles and approach magazine and would get things. So I suggested to him, as an example, that he write an article on Alan Freed um, for people, since we're largely with a bluegrass audience, Alan Freed was a person who was claimed to have um, coined the name rock and roll, and he was the most important DJ in the country. In Cleveland area, wasn't in he? In the Cleveland area, and then moved to uh, New York to um, WINS 1010 on your dial. And um, that's where I first encountered him. I had a, um, a friend who was... Um, Spending overnight, Mike Gansfuss, who was a first baseman and a football star, and he spent the night and he wanted to um, listen to WINS, and he introduced me to rock and roll. So instead of hearing the uh, white versions of songs by Pat Boone, you know, I heard the originals by Fats Domino and, you know, whoever else, and I heard the, um, the, versions, the original versions of songs that became popular by white artists. Um, you know, like the Diamonds, I would hear the original on Excello, you know, records and a lot of the uh, the independent labels. Going from it, Elvis to Big Mama Thornton and yeah, stuff like so, that. Yeah. Which so, is also yeah. the reason that Ken Bluegrass aficionado actually is pretty expert in a lot of doo-wop of a certain period. Can, wow. Can sing all the words, knows the artists, and yeah, yeah. It's, you know... Ken, Ken, you're you're really well rounded. Like you, you know, Marion just brought up that that know, wasn't the, how the name came about. So. <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, it could have been. That would have worked. Yeah, you guys well, are well rounded. <laughs> Rap scallions that we are. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you guys are around yeah. everything. Yeah. Um, it sounds like you know, you know, you're you're well rounded and know a lot about a di- lot of different subjects, a lot of different types of music. It sounds like your your was your father in a similar way. You know, it sounds like he. He was good at taking complex information and boiling it down in an understandable manner. Did he primarily deal with with medical issues, or was it all different sorts of topics that all, he would... all different subjects? Okay. Um, he interviewed um, Ted Kennedy after his um, plane crash, and Eleanor Roosevelt, and I mean, he's his guess is that he wrote over a thousand articles. Wow! So lots and lots of topics. And said um, it was a combination of things that he was interested in um, and things that we're editors were right. interested yeah. in and, you know, would assign him an article. And, you know, he was able to find um, subjects that he was interested in and um, get paid to become a professional, you know, and, and, and an expert in that area. And um, just loved it and... Um, it was great. So the Alan Freed, um, we went up to uh, Freed's place in Connecticut, and um, I was there for the interview, and I helped him edit um, when he made mistakes and got bands' names wrong. How and, old were you? Um, at that point, I was probably um, 13, 14, wow. something like that. And Freed gave me this stack of records. It must have been two feet high, you know, 45s. <laughs> and he gave me a transistor radio, um, really <laughs> cool maroon transistor radio. 
and uh, invited us to go to um, some of the shows at the Brooklyn Paramount. And uh, unfortunately, my father heard stories of riots at some of the rock and roll shows, so we never um, never <laughs> took him up on that. But I, you know, I wish we had because that would have I'm been. I'm sure you're thinking, well, that sounds even better. <laughs> that would have been, you know, Fats Domino and Frankie Lyman and um, Jackie Wilson, um, just you know, every every early act in that in that period, I would have been able to see live. It sounds like growing up, he sounded sounds like the farthest thing from someone that would help found a bluegrass record label. What do you think, Marion? I think that's probably true. Yeah. <laughs> Al- Although. Um, I got to know Charlie Chase pretty well. Uh, Charlie Chase used to go around, uh, Dara, uh, Charlie and Doris used to go around to the Bluegrass Festivals and they'd set up their table and um, they came with two cars and uh, vans and full of records and they'd set up their table. And um, we had a, an awkward beginning when um, Ron Thomason invited me to go to Winterhawk and set up and I guess... Um, another person. This is from jumping when, ahead decades. Yes, when yeah. and and, um, and I think Mary Daub invited uh, Charlie and Doris, and we Charlie and Doris decided that that wasn't going to work, and he went over and went to um, to another festival to sell. But we got to talking later on, and. Um, I mentioned I mentioned doo-wop to him, and he didn't know what it was. And so I made him uh, a cassette <laughs> of doo-wop to show him the similarities between um, bluegrass gospel and doo-wop. Yeah, with the with the with the bass voices and the high tenors and high baritones. And he became a fan, and uh, yeah, we did skip a little bit. So, of, so of in time other words, there. you, you yeah. can make that connection. <laughs> yeah. and and the and I think that uh, uh, Ken has sort of pointed it out a little generally here, but it's it's the singing, harmony singing, and also just great singing, great lead singing, um, great great and, soulful singing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that that's what they both that's have in common. Is that something that drew both of you to bluegrass music? Yeah, no question. Yeah. I always listen to lyrics, and Ken always listens to lyrics. And we starting have, with yeah. Hank Williams, he yeah. started off with country soul. Yeah. yeah. You don't get any better than yeah. that. What was your first expo- exposure to bluegrass? Because it sounds like it, it probably wasn't just falling off of trees left and right where you were at. No. Um, Folk revival. This, uh, no, the my first connection with bluegrass, I had a bunch of old Mad magazines, and I traded well, them. Well, he was cool. I, I, <laughs> I unfortunately <laughs> traded them to um, to a friend, um, and um, I think. Um, that was no. That was a different person. That was um, the Crances, and they traded me um, some forty um, fives, and there were a few rock and roll ones. But they also had um, the Stanley Brothers' "Little Talk to Jesus," and um, also some seventy eights of the Robins, who were who were great, great harmony group, and various other music and. You know, I listened to the Stanley Brothers, and I just thought, "Boy, that's weird." You know, kind of. Um, and was this when you, you were go still? To, you go to your church, and I'll go to mine. Was that you when know? you were still in high school, Ken? Yeah, this is yeah. still in high okay. school, and um, 
then um, the next major thing, um, my mother died in my senior year of high school. And what was she like? She was wonderful. She was, um, in addition to writing, she um, she was just a, a loving, very supportive mother. Um, she was. She largely brought us up because for a number of the years, my father was commuting into New York, um, where he worked, and it was mostly later on and in his later later years that he worked from home. So we would have. Um, he would usually be gone by breakfast time, and then would be uh, coming home after we had dinner. So a lot of the time it was um, with my mother, and um, she played a little bit of piano. She did um, a lot of um, book reviewing, really, um, a lot of uh, children's books, and so we always had loads of books in the house and children's books, and I think that was intentional. And um, it, it was brought up that your father was Jewish. Was your mother Jewish as well? Yes, uh, she was a Reisman. A Reisman. Yeah. How did they, uh, to go back to the, the name thing, how did they pick the name Irwin? I wasn't around. And, and Ken has an older brother, and, and it was before either before either of them were born. Yeah. So. It never got brought up how they, <clears throat> how they settled on that? Thing. Not on, on why they settled on that particular one. At least you've never mentioned no. that. Yeah. But clearly it, it's, you know, it sounded you know, more Anglo, more American. Yeah. Yeah. What? You know, as as Jewish people before the the way that w- we all understand, you know, like the Holocaust and things like that. Before before that happened, how were Jewish people treated in America in in your parents' time? Do you want to deal with that? Maybe? Yeah. yeah, I mean, they would have been. They would have been. Um, and they would have been dealt with as as um, people who were ethnically. You had to prove yourself before you became sort of an officially white person. So you would have been regarded as an outsider. And there's no question. I mean, that was during an era when there were um, rules, um, uh, well, quotas. If colleges even accepted Jewish people, it was a very small percentage. Um, and, like a cap on how many? Yeah, and uh, there were clubs, social clubs, uh, from which Jewish people would have been excluded. Um, so, in fact, there was a great deal of anti-Semitism, as there was in Europe, as there was in England, and um, um, and that's the reason why it would have been. And they were definitely regarded not just as sort of outsiders, but as um, as as people who were possibly communists, Bolsheviks, and um, that's the reason why it was, if it was, and in the 1930s, there was a huge amount of anti-Semitism. So if you were Jewish and you were going to be publishing books, it was a good idea not to have as Jewish a name as Isaacs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it sounds like you know a lot about that, like that history. How many people... Was it common for a lot of Jewish people to change their names at that time? Yes. Okay. Like about how, is there any kind of rough guess on about how many Jewish people, you know, essentially tried to 
to hide their Jewishness uh, for, you, you their, can, for their can, kids? You can use the Google machine. Okay, and you, you, and there are there are lists yes. where they where they have people's um, a lot of people in um, acting and you know in the entertainment business. Who all um, changed You know, names. and you say, right. um, you know, what, what were their original names? And and we had a um, a very good friend um, whose name was Cohen, and he was a lawyer and changed it to um, to Carlin, which was a you know less quite common. You know, and 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 the other thing is that it, there is this sort of American myth. It's very widespread that everybody, all the immigrants who came through Ellis Island, were assigned names so that their names would sound more American. This actually isn't quite true, but it is true that many Jewish people, when they were coming in, some of them might have had their names changed there as well. So again, it was just, you know, like immigrants, outsiders were all people who were suspicious until they became Americanized. That's just a part of American history. There there are still even, you know, I think even today people refer to... Um, many Jewish people in terms of the way that they handle money. Um, and, you know, you hear, hear comments yeah. frequently. Um, well, and there's more anti-Semitism now than probably ever before. So, I mean, it's been a consistent theme, but um, as Ken was saying, in, in the entertainment field, in publishing and so forth, if you were, it was not a good idea to have uh, a Jewish name, and it, particularly if you were doing the kind of writing that Ken's father was doing. Yeah. Um, it, were your parents, did your parents immigrate here directly or do, or your grandparents or do, do you have any idea how, how many Grand, grandparents, your grandparents previous. Did. So I think that, um, I'm Romanian, Polish, English, and trying to think. I, I remember those three. Wow. So it's an interesting uh, combination. Instr- interesting mix. Um, and not that unusual yeah. among um, Jewish people who emigrated to the United States. So I only knew um, my, one grandmother from Romania. The others had passed away before I was born. You, you mentioned something about sometimes, you know, there's still a, a, a propensity for people to to make comments or to, you know, say different, there's certain Jewish stereotypes that are still pretty um, prevalent as, you know, because your name has changed, have there been any awkward instances where people will say things not knowing that that you're Jewish or that's your heritage because they, because of, because of the name change and and not aware about that, uh, aware of that? We, we actually did, experience some um, uh, negative Ken being stereotyped as being Jewish by people with whom we dealt in the bluegrass world. Really? And, and of course, it's still not uncommon to hear people say, oh, don't Jew me down. And people would say, oh, well, he's Jewish and he's from the North, so we know that he's going to be not exactly ripping us off, but he'll be making a good deal for... And we pinch in pennies. And stuff. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And and I've I've been asked, what do you people think of something? <laughs> <laughs> and what people might that be? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> um, it's just... It, it's just interesting to me 
yep. that, you know, people from, that's one thing that's unique about bluegrass is because there are so many different people from so many different types of backgrounds that are passionate in, in this music. And, um, and it's been that way for a lot longer than people want to, to talk about, yep. you know? So, um, and before we leave that topic, yes, I mean, when we first started Rounder, of course, we were um, still either newly out of college or, in my case, still in in college and um, graduate school. And and when we went down south for the first times, and when we were doing research for the early days of bluegrass series and stuff like that, and going around and sort of taping interviews and so forth, you know, there's no question that we were regarded as sort of, you know, hippies and as people who, you know, probably were against the war and stuff like that. Um, and we had a lot of interesting conversations sometimes with, um, uh, sometimes pretty frank conversations. And, and they were good conversations, but I mean, there's no question that we were stereotyped as that, not because of Ken being Jewish or me being from a northern place yeah, yeah. or whatever. So it was it was more the cultural stereotypes. And, and of course, we kind of had, you know, some stereotypes about southern people, too. We, in, in fact, they were kind of exotic and we embraced them, yeah. but we all kind of had to work those things out. Well, when you would, would you like to tell the story about um, our record collecting experience when we visited an an elderly woman and had lengthy conversations with her? You mean the one about Bill? Yep. Oh, this was a good one. It was in West Virginia, and we were doing some research. He's snickering over here. Look, <laughs> look at that little grin. It was, it was very funny. <laughs> Troublemaker. <laughs> it was very funny, actually, and and um, but uh, we were. Uh, putting out the Blind Alfred Reed um, record in our 1000 series, How Can a Poor Man Stand Such Times and Live, which Ry Cooder had at that point recently recorded. And, and, um, oh, it was before he had. Was it before oh, he yes, had? I, it was, I thought it was after, yeah. but at any rate, we had heard of it. So we were visiting one of Blind Alfred Reed's relatives. And um, the three of us were at the door talking to her a little bit. This was, I think, near Pipestem, West Virginia. But it was out in the country. And um, as we were talking to her, um, she somehow she she brought up um, the subject of religion and being saved and that that's the most important thing in life and so forth. And Bill is standing there kind of nodding his head. Now, here is someone who has, like, hair down, partway down his shoulders, fastened back with a banjo capo, and me with long hair, and Ken with a huge amount of facial hair, and we're all wearing jeans and stuff like this, and she's telling us about you need to be saved. Bill's nodding his head, and she's like, she reached out, and she said, oh, are you ready to be saved? Yeah, meaning to Bill, and he's like, huh, it was like <laughs> the deer in the headlights all over. And I said, well, you know, it's... It's, it, as Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says about, for by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And she's like, oh, you understand. So it was like I saved Bill from almost instant baptism. I mean, it was like she was ready to take him down to the river. And it was you like. You saved him from being saved. <laughs> I saved him from being I mean, he had no idea what was going on. It just completely. the The. <laughs> He's just, the, the jargon went right over his head. 
Well, it's not jargon. That's a, yeah. a Bible verse, of course. But it was sort of like it's kind of saved his bacon, whether he knew it or not, because it then reassured her that we knew something about the Bible and therefore maybe we already were saved. So at any rate, it sort of put, um, it, I was able to sort of end that conversation on a graceful note. We exited and Bill was like, what was that all about? <laughs> she, you were able to, to, to pivot her off of the, the heathen hippies. That right. <laughs> Indeed, heathen hippies is, is definitely a good word for it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> folks, my brother-in-law Daniel introduced me to Samson's Dead Sea Clay two months ago and I've been using it ever since. It's the only product I've found that not only gives me that moldable matte finish I've been looking for, but also leaves my hair feeling healthier when I wash it out. So if you're like me and want healthy, stylish hair, go to samsonshaircare.com and use promo code bluegrass to save 10% and order Samson's Dead Sea Clay today. So we got early childhood uh, development, <laughs> major modern European history, and Bill studied something. Political com- science. That was it. Yep. Political science. So I don't see in any of those th- three majors screaming record label executives. And none of, and none of <laughs> us had had a single business course. <laughs> yeah. So we knew nothing about that. And, and in, in terms of things like business plans and so forth, we didn't have that either. I mean, it was a, a different time, a different age. I think, you know, more recently when I've talked about it, I feel that I was the only one who had preparation because in dealing with emotionally disturbed children, <laughs> there there is... Um, a certain amount of that um, that is transferable. A lot of crossover <laughs> with musicians. Right? <laughs> that, that's wonderful. I, I, I said musicians. Uh, hopefully, he's not talking about you and Bill, right? <laughs> no, I think you drew the right conclusion, but it's yep. probably me and Bill yep. too. <laughs> now, the you know when when you think about it, being in a band. Um, especially a long-standing band, you, um, a lot of artists start out 17, 16, 18, 20, and um, almost like being in a sports team, you are around these people and you develop your own language. You hear the same jokes. You have the same experiences. Um, you know, and you know, you you see the same fans. And there's a, a little bubble that can be created there, where you live in that bubble and don't really expand greatly. And there, you know, there can be. Um, a way in which you don't have to grow up in the same way. And it's true with a lot of athletes, too, where they're, they're living in this, this little world. And um, I mean, we, we had a little bit in, in our world, too, where we traveled in the same, you know, same bus and we'd see the same people and we'd see the same groups and we'd, you know, we'd have the same experiences. And... Um, well, you kind of, you know, 
to use sort of contemporary jargon, everybody sort of creates their own kind of tribe or crew or whatever. Family, and, yeah. as some people say, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, and yes, family in, this, in the, uh, the non- um, uh, Non-familial family. The non-civil <laughs> marriage, legal marriage kind, yeah, of, yeah. kind, uh, kind of thing, yeah. And um, <clears throat> so there's definitely that. And, and in fact, in the very beginning, we often tried to bring other people into what we called the Rounder Collective when we started. But most people didn't have the same feeling about the music that we were doing. Um, and they had sort of different goals and priorities. And so some folks, in fact, did lived in, live in our little communal situation <clears throat> during the first couple of years of Rounder. And it just, um, it's partly that, you know, we already had um, enough experience in terms of going to festivals and selling records and having uh, favorite musicians in common and, you know, or favorite folkways records or something like that that we like to play around the house that everybody else might hate for that matter so it was um yeah it was hard for other people because you do develop your own what we might call today corporate culture for that matter yeah. oh. you're going pretty in-depth daniel yeah. do you really dare to go there oh <laughs> buckle up <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna be a bumpy ride <laughs> should we bring our sleeping bags <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, and, and for example, about the book. Well, we'll tell, talk about that later. I hadn't yeah. even heard you mention that before. Which one? The one about Freud. Oh. A Far Country. Yeah. I'm impressed. No, I mean, not by your reading the yeah. book, but the fact that that's new information. Yeah. You know, because you tell the story after a while, and it becomes an increasingly, I hate to say this, false memory. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. That's a... So the fact that hearing new stuff indicates that that was some pretty, you know, fresh uh, information there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how important was the radio program Hillbilly at Harvard in deepening your guys' understanding and appreciation and passion for bluegrass music? Ken and Bill, actually, I'll just say one small thing because because it's I'm less important here than um, Ken and Bill, as four years older, had been listening to Hillbilly at Harvard longer than I did. You keep but, stressing that. But for but for me, <laughs> she's the youngest. <laughs> but for me, it was really important as a learning thing because when I first met Ken in the summer of 1967, um, he did have a little tape recorder and he he taped Hillbilly at Harvard. And so this little reel-to-reel Wallensack, um, he would play these Hellbilly at Harvard tapes. And that was really how I had my first broader exposure to hearing everything from the Greenbrier Boys and the Charles River Valley Boys to the Stanley Brothers to Bill Monroe and so forth. Uh, I'd never heard Jimmy Monroe, Jimmy Martin or any of, you know, so for me it was huge, and it was via Ken from Hillbilly. She Harvard. was a deprived child. Well, I was. <laughs> <laughs> I had other things in my culture, but not not that, absolutely. Oh, I, I need to back Jimmy up. Martin doesn't show up in Russian no, novels right. too much, does he? <laughs> he was not a big, you know, Dostoevsky wasn't a big Jimmy Martin fan. He'd liven that up, right? <laughs> I, I need to back up. Okay. Okay, so going back to my my mother died, yeah, um, and my father um, was almost immediately invited to meet eligible women by their friends. So he was invited to 
everybody's house and they had, you know, the widow or their their friend, whatever. And uh, within a matter of weeks, um, he had dozens of these gatherings. Casseroles in his refrigerator. Just people that he had met. Yeah. um, That's the the sign right there. My my father was not a cook. And so the first first time after um, my mother died, I was... I was the cook in the family. Um, what was your signature dish, Ken? Uh, well, Tuna casserole? <laughs> I, I, I did what I could. And, um, <laughs> then, then I tried stuffed cabbage. And the next day, my mother, my father hired a cook. <laughs> it was Sounds something. like there's a, the reason he didn't stick in the culinary field. He didn't, didn't take, did no. it? <laughs> But the the net result of this was that when it came time for my high school graduation, my father had what he felt were all these obligations of people. Um, And so he figured he would um, take care of the obligations and have my um, graduation party. So we invited all these people to... um, to my graduation party and a few of my friends. And um, <laughs> they all brought graduation presents. And one of um, my parents' best friend were the, the, the prices. Um, and the prices had a, um, a son who was a few years older than I was. And his name was Steve, Stephen. And um, they asked him, what should, what should I get um, Ken for his graduation? And he asked, what kind of music is he like? And he said, folk music, you know, which for me was um, Odetta and Pete Seeger and the Chad Mitchell Trio. And um, I think we had a couple of folk records, um, Pete Seeger Gazette and um, songs of the... Um, of the Freedom Marchers and things along those lines. He'd, well, if he's into folk music, he should have at least one bluegrass record. And so they bought me the um, first Greenbrier Boys record with um, a whole lot more of Jesus and Rosie's Gone Again and um, a whole lot more of Jesus and a lot less rock and roll and um, Amelia Earhart's Last Flight. And um, so I got that record. Who all was playing with the Greenbrier Briar Boys on that record? Um, that was uh, Bob. You know, I was going to just give last names, but you know, the Greenbrier Boys probably aren't uh, household names to a lot of the people uh, that will be hearing this. So it was uh, Bob Yellen on banjo and Ralph Rensler on. Uh, mandolin, uh, John Harold on guitar. I think Fred Wise on bass. Um, and I think Jimmy Buchanan on fiddle. Fiddle? No, it was. It wasn't. I think Buchanan was the second one. It was um, from the Galax area. I'll have to think about Buddy Pendleton, I believe. Um, and um, I played it and. Didn't like it, you know, again, those high, squeaky voices. And Didn't like the sound of banjo. Yeah. yeah. And then, and then 
you know, move, moving forward a couple months. This trajectory keeps seem, seeming less and less likely. <laughs> no. We're giving you all the reasons yeah. why it might not have happened. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, <laughs> it's almost like a Netflix. All these, you know, all the, all these different candidates for, you know, then it all bursts out. So, um, I, I find out, um, about a month before, um, school was supposed to start, um, I was originally thinking of going down south um, to Duke or out to um, uh, Kenyon College in Ohio, small school. Um, and I thought that would be really good because it was an all-male school and I, I wouldn't get distracted. Um, but then when my mother died, well, I decided, was a good to, kid. What? I <laughs> decided to uh, stay closer to home. And so I went to Tufts in Boston, which was about a four-hour drive. Um, so it was close enough so my father, you know, I could come home or my father could come and visit. And um, I found out who my roommate was going to be and um, got this uh, right after I got the notice that it was going to be um, William G. Nowlin, Jr., and... Um, Almost immediately, I got this letter, and in it, it said, um, seeing as you're from upstate New York, uh, you're probably a Republican. Who are you going to be uh, supporting in the upcoming senatorial election between um, Robert Thompson Pell and Jacob Javits? Boy, he's a real political major. <laughs> and I wrote back and said I, was, uh, I liked folk music, and I was a Dodger fan. And uh, I was a little bit uh, trepidatious about this guy, and so what a letter! Um, a, a, a little, a little bit, a little bit later, um, this friend of mine, John Freund, and I were going to go visit a friend up on Cape Cod. So we decided to go up and and visit um, William G. Allen Jr., who was by now Bill. And so we went up there, but in case things didn't work out, um, John and I changed identities. So he became Ken, and I became John. And uh, we were invited to uh, really spend Really going to fill this guy out. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we, we had dinner with, uh, with the Nowlin family, and then they made beds for us upstairs. And, and John and I thought about it, and we said, no, let's, let's go and continue, and we'll, we'll drive that night to, um, to the Cape. And uh, right before we left, we told them <laughs> that we had switched identities. And, um, you know, by that time, we decided that he was, you know, probably okay. And, <laughs> and we, we went on. So then uh, we go on to college, and I had a record player at home, which I brought up. And uh, with my, my records, Bill had his records. And um, I had a, um, a high school friend. Um, who was um, one room over and um, ups upstairs from us. And so we ran, they didn't have a record player, so we ran wires out of my record player out the window and up the stairs and into their radio. So <laughs> when we played something, um, they would... They would hear it. Surround sound before there was such a thing. <laughs> and uh, whatever we were feeling a little bit ornery, we'd put on 
Rosie's gone again. <laughs> oh, hey, hey, the sheriff, Paul. Better call the sheriff, call because Rosie's gone again. And then start into the banjo kickoff. And um, we would play that. And over time, listening to it, we got used to it, started to get to like it, and um, saw that they were, um, the Greenbrier Boys were coming to play in town. And uh, we went to, to that, and um, we ended up, singing those songs we neither of us knew harmony so we sang in unison um not very good and um then somewhere along that time i noticed i went to the um did seeing the musical did seeing the band live uh change your perspective at all about the music i mean it sounds like you had you were already you were already there but um was seeing it live how was it? How was that different than hearing it on the record? It helped quite a bit. I mean, it was much more entertaining, and we we knew the songs. And um, about that time, we started to go see other bluegrass groups at the um, at the Club Forty Seven, and um, at the Unicorn. Uh, the Country Gentleman came up, um, but mostly in. In Club 47 had the Charles River Valley Boys, and they had Rooney Val and Applin, which was... Um, Jim Rooney and Joe Val. Joe Val and Herb, Val and Herb Applin, and, um, and uh, lots of other Stanley Brothers came up. Uh, Clarence Ashley uh, came up with a very, uh, very early Doc Watson's probably... Uh, but he wasn't even mentioned. It was Clarence Ashley who was coming up. So we got to hear um, Roscoe Holcomb, lots of you know great um, old time and a pretty and a pretty broad spectrum too. It sounds like mm-hmm. oh yeah, but yeah. there was yeah. also you know lots of blues greats, um, Mississippi John Hurt. Um, we saw played and, at the club forty seven um, right? uh, very early Bob Dylan. Um, I, I remember that um, at at one point. Um, we were writing an article on Dylan for the local broadside magazine, and um, we needed a good ending. Um, I think that was Gene, Gene Ritchie, and we needed a good ending for the article, and so we wrote out this, this little thing saying, um, if you ain't heard Gene Ritchie, you ain't heard of nobody. And we had our friend Bill Hinckley read that. And then we quoted Bill Hinckley and he said, as Bill Hinckley once said, <laughs> if you ain't heard Gene Ritchie, you ain't heard it anybody. <laughs> and then that's the way we ended the, uh, the article. And when, when Clarence Ashley was coming, Bill had this little um, set of, um, you know, for stamps and he made up a stamp saying Clarence Ashley is coming. And we went and we took a whole bunch of cards and we said Clarence Ashley is coming and we put them all over Harvard Square. Uh, and then about that time, um, I was doing, I don't know how this came up, but I started to go to different churches and um different um, museums, and um, I got one of those little college booklets where you get discounts to all these different restaurants. So I would have 
dates where we'd go to a a a church and then go to an an entertainment and then go out to eat and um one of the places I went entertainment-wise was the Charles Playhouse, and they had a little sign up there. There was a, a repertory theater, and I saw a sign for campus representatives. And so I expressed interest, and I went to a meeting, and I became a campus representative for the Charles Playhouse, which meant putting up posters at the various um, places at Tufts and all the um, near the... Um, different dining halls and all over the place. And um, so we got free tickets. Like a street team. Yeah, it was, yeah. It was a before street teams. Yeah, it was, yeah. it was a very early street yeah, team. Yeah. That's exactly And right. then yeah. that worked, like that. and yeah. so we yeah. contacted um, Manny Greenhill, who was the um, main promoter, and we ended up um, getting free tickets to... Um, concerts by Manita Plata and Theater Bikel and Flatten Scruggs um, with Merle Travis and later on Doc Watson. And for you know four years, we were campus representatives for them. And then we approached the Theater Company of Boston and became campus rep- representatives for them. Um, so Bill and I were you know doing this. And so all of our 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 dates were free you know we just had to get into boston and everything else was was taken care of so we went to um they were the, cheap in other words yeah we went to the <laughs> uh we went to the the flatten scruggs and merle travis show and i thought that was so amazing to go to a concert that had three guitar players who had um guitar styles named after them what is the chance of that? <laughs> so you had Travis picking and Scruggs picking and flat picking. <laughs> the reason that he's laughing is that I thought that flat picking was named after Lester, Lester Flat. Had two T's in it. So yeah, that's we awesome. had uh, a little, uh, little bit of learning uh, <laughs> process there. <laughs> so that's how, that, that was our first job in the in the music oh. industry. Unpaid. If there is one essential item that bluegrassers need to take with them to a festival, it is a good lawn chair. We all need a lawn chair. We've all had problems when we've had a crappy lawn chair. Enter Lawn Chair USA. Lawn Chair USA are made in the USA folding aluminum lawn chairs. They are the number one supplier of folding lawn chairs. By folding lawn chairs, I mean the old school ones, you know, the ones that were really sturdy, the ones that don't feel like you're sitting in a hammock, the ones that don't tear, the ones that don't wind up at the end of the road at the end of the season. I'm talking a solid Made in the USA, well-built lawn chair. LawnchairUSA.com slash walls of time for your new favorite lawn chair. And trust me, it's one you can use to sit on the edge of your seat at your next bluegrass festival. Use code walls of time to save 10% at Lawn Chair USA. So I've got to ask, was Bill always as obsessed with baseball as as you know he's written a lot of books about baseball he's a huge baseball aficionado for folks that don't know was he always that into baseball he was a huge ted williams fan huge um 
And uh, yes, he was a Red Sox fan, but I think he it, it's become deeper over time. But it started yeah. out he was a Red Sox fan and and a Ted Williams fan. So that does go back. And in fact, um, skipping for a while, there was a time that we had thought about. Um, we had become very friendly with uh, Danny Bailey down in, in Knoxville. And um, we... We meaning Ken and I. Yeah. yeah. And we had stayed with uh, with Danny and we had gone to the Kaz Walker show um, with Danny um, probably about 10, 12 times. And we really got to like uh, Knoxville. And the Bailey brothers were um, born in Happy Valley. And so we thought about moving uh, Rounder down to Happy Valley, and we actually looked at properties. And we, and we were named both the, pub- the Rounder Publishing Company is called Happy Valley Music um, after Happy Valley in East Tennessee. Um, wow. Yeah. So that was, the, and, and to finish what Ken was saying about Bill and baseball, that and it, in answer to your question, um, we really weren't that aware that Bill was as, he wasn't as, Obsessed with baseball back then. I mean, he, he had. And honestly, in, in a derogatory way. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. In terms of its being, you know, sort of a life passion, there yeah. was no sense at that point that that would be the case. He he definitely, um, but he, he wouldn't consider moving to East Tennessee because he didn't want to be that far from Fenway Park. And that was the first time, really, that we became aware that, and we thought to ourselves, well, he doesn't go to baseball games or anything. Maybe he's just using that as an excuse because he doesn't want to move to East Tennessee. But um, and, at any rate, that was the reason that he gave. Wow. So then we kind of, uh, you know, became more aware of it. And of course, he had been, as someone, as a kid who grew up in the Boston area, been taken to Red Sox games from the time that he was a kid by his father. So he had those memories, obviously, and of, uh, you know, Fenway Park and, you know, an, an iconic ball field. Yeah. So the answer to your question is that it was sort of there, but I think considerably in the background compared to later, except for that one instance when we started becoming more aware of it, because we really seriously did think about moving to East Tennessee. Yeah. Wow, that's interesting because, you know, he for folks that don't know, he is, you know, a world-renowned baseball aficionado, baseball historian, written several books about baseball. No, not several, dozens. Dozens. <laughs> he, has, he has now written his hundredth book. Wow. Or, or, or there were some that he edited and contributed to. But, yeah. in, in fact, yeah. we were just corrected on that. It's 100. 100. Right. Books about baseball. Yeah. And and it was kind of like just simmering under the surface, and that was the first time it kind of bubbled up. Was yeah. wow. When just out of out of sheer curiosity, when when did when did he really start like diving headfirst into that passion? Um, no, what would you say, Ken? It was it I was, was going to say in his fifties. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No. It was it was definitely a um, something later in life. Wow, yeah, definitely. Because he didn't have, you know, he didn't have the time um, earlier on because of Rounder and commitment. and also yeah, because yeah. he was he was teaching political science, yeah, um, uh, college level political science, and to go back to what we were saying before in terms of Ken and Bill and Club Forty, you know, the music that we all got to hear at Club Forty Seven, the first time I met 
Bill because I met Bill through Ken. And um, it was in 1968, which was during my, um, or it might have been, yeah. But anyhow, my sophomore year of college. And it was, again, it was at the Club 47, and I still remember to this day what we heard, which was Junior, Junior Wells and Buddy Guy. Um, and uh, so that was, again, the, the sort of thing that was as much a part of our passion for the music as bluegrass or uh, Clarence Ashley or anything else. It was just all great music I to think us. that was Del Mark 612. <laughs> what, Buddy Guy and Junior Wells? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you met Bill, Bill through Ken. Exactly. How did you and Ken meet? Uh, Ken and I were both in uh, Portland, Maine. Um, Ken was working um, on a special education master's degree and working with exceptional children uh, as a summer um, internship. And I was wor- had my first work-study job in college. When I went to a, a school that was uh, for the first year and a half that was uh, co-op work study. And my first job was at the Urban Renewal Authority at, at City Hall in downtown Portland, Maine. And neither one of us knew anything about anyone in Portland, Maine. And Portland, Maine at that time, well, now it's sort of like the northern Brooklyn. But back in those days, it was just a very depressed town with, like, no downtown at all. And um, there was one little coffee sh- uh, a coffee house. That was about the only thing that was even vaguely interesting in the entire downtown port- part of Portland, Maine. <clears throat> and um, so I went in there one day after work, and Ken was there with a book about the blues. And um, I went up to him and said, are you talkable? And that's how we met. <laughs> Little did you know. That's right. <laughs> that we would be yeah, talking yeah, about you, muzzling him yeah, today. Yeah, you learned the answer to that question real quick, didn't you? Exactly. And this, this is from somebody who claims that she's shy. <laughs> oh, I am, except about talking about something that's interesting. Anything not to go to cocktail parties or anything not to have to make chit-chat and small talk. And so you guys became fast friends. We did immediately. I mean, we went to, I think... I mean, we were very young then, of course. Yeah, yeah. And so we went to a local park and uh, played um, uh, on the swing set or something. That's awesome. Uh, <laughs> that day. We, we so. also went, went to the park when it was pouring and brought some soap and, yeah. and, <laughs> and took, took, a, took a, a natural shower. Because <laughs> even after we started Rounder and the three of us were on the road in the VW bus, we, have, we never stayed in hotels or motels. So we, were, we have virtually no memory of ever taking showers or baths. Jody Logan, you know, the daughter of the late, great Dr. Tex Logan said, oh, sure, you used our shower one time when we were at Berryville. And somebody else said, oh, yeah, don't you remember you, you know, took a bath in the river the same (laughs) as, uh, you know, everybody else did and, you know, uh, went to that particular festival. They were few and far between, right? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So I've got to ask, and I know you guys are fast friends, business partners, as young people that were college students that had similar interests, um, it, were you guys ever, do you guys ever con- consider more than friends as, as young people? Like, did you guys ever go on like a romantic date or it's always just like oh. friend, strictly friends? <laughs> it's really a kind of funny story, but it is fairly well known. So there's, there's no secret we're letting out of the bag here. No, Ken was my college boyfriend. So he was, he was like and my... she was my college girlfriend. <laughs> well, but Ken was engaged at the time. Oh, shoot. 
And so, in fact, it's a pretty fascinating... He's quickly drinking his water. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Anything stronger? <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and, and again, this is sort of very indicative of the times then, and probably very different from the world in which you grew up and, which the, and the world in which I grew up and which I was strongly rebelling against, um, certainly by that time. But yeah, so Ken and I actually lived together, sh- slept together, shared an apartment together, during the week, Ken would go down and sort of see his girlfriend and do whatever he was doing on the weekend. I saw other people. And bring back hillbilly at Harvard tapes. And, <laughs> and I've looked, I mean, we, neither one of us have a copy of this, but uh, we actually had a contract saying that that was the nature of our relationship. Wow. And here he said that he wanted to go to an all boys school because it would be, maybe he really didn't need those distractions. Well, I think that most anyone at any age, sort of like, if you're going to have sex, let's face it, you're going to go for that as opposed to going to a boys' school someplace. <laughs> So I take back that I said he was a good a good kid, man. <laughs> so you could say I led him astray, but you could also say he was just you know like a bad fiance. You could also, but it was more or less official. But at any rate, it was sewing wild oats. And yes, then I, and then we planned the agreement was that it yes. was just going to be for the summer. Yep, and yep. then yep. I would um, go back, and yep. so. Um, and it sort of went on like that for easily a good year or two. Um, and then um, um, Ken and his fiance sort of went their separate ways. Ken and I had already hitchhiked across country. It's shocking that that engagement didn't work out. <laughs> well, especially <laughs> given the fact that, that our living together that summer with this little contract saying this is the nature of the agreement and so forth. I mean, that's kind of small potatoes compared to hitchhiking cross country, riding in a you know, boxcar and a freight train, um, living in a crash pad in Haight-Ashbury, going to a rock festival on the West Coast, you know, taking up the entire summer. Well, cra- crashing the rock it, festival. Cra- crashing. Go, drive, driving down from San Francisco to um, Newport Beach in a um, slightly modified... VW bug that had no seats, so there were like there a dozen were seven people seven people. So Marion sat summer? on my lap. <laughs> yeah, this is oh, one and this summer. is also um, you know you, you wanted to get into things. Um, we would <laughs> we would um, we would um, panhandle during uh, during that summer, and um, Marion and I would do this little um, incy, incy wincy spider. No, I did that. Yeah. You were sort of my backup. Yeah, I've learned how to do it. Yeah, it and and um, and she got arrested for, for panhandling. panhandling. Yeah, no way. And, and and didn't spend a night in jail, but I was arrested. And of course, I was afraid at that point that, that I might lose my college scholarship because that was the way I was going to college. And so of she course. gave an, uh, another name. And so they were having trouble locating me when another guy from our crash pad who had a motorcycle rode, you know, over with Ken, and they were looking for me. But anyhow, they found me and we got out. So yeah, it was a very adventurous and uh, exciting and crazy summer. And uh, oh, so, and we went down to Mexico. Yeah, we did. Lived in in, in Tijuana for. 
for a few weeks and, and all sorts of crazy stuff happened. And then we both went back to Ken was finishing up his, his, oh, but, uh, but his doctorate. We have, to, we have to do this. I know this is, Marion still um, doesn't like that, that I bring this up. But on the way back, we spent <sighs> 11, 11 cents. We were picked up by um, by truckers almost the entire way, and uh, Marion bought. Ken a, a, has never let me forget the fact that this eleven cents I spent. Otherwise, <laughs> we would not have had to spend any money at all. And one cent was for a um, a a piece of bubble gum, and a dime was for a donut. Right. And that was all that we spent on the entire trip back. You were going for a record, right? Ken's <laughs> always going on for the way a record. Back That's and, right. and, oh, and while, not while, spend while, any money. Yeah, while, while, cheap, we were at, while we were out there, we panhandled <laughs> our way into the Hungry Eye to see Flatten Scruggs. So I, that was the first time I had seen Flatten Scruggs because I hadn't ever seen them in Cambridge, and it was great. It was it was uh, worth every penny. And, and what? <laughs> <laughs> this is Randy was in the band. It okay. was it was a little bit later yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. And we didn't have we good. didn't have an, enough money to get in. We were panhandling, and then the owner came outside and said, uh, "Oh, can I buy you a dinner?" He said, no, "You know, no, thank you. We just, you know, would like to go in." And so he, you know, gave it gave it wow. b- comped us. And and the Hungry Eye, in case you haven't heard of it, was was a really legendary club in North Beach, San Francisco, where Lenny Bruce used to play regularly. Okay. He was sort of like the house comedian. So it was like a pretty, you know, it was kind of like a a, um, um, a beatnik place. Yeah. And I think, the, yeah. I think the Kingston Trio did a record at the Hungry Eye. Yeah. yeah. That so, was legendary. So I've got to ask, you cram all that into one summer. Yeah. Oh, and, what and also, in the world was your... Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. yeah. So, so we're, we're hitchhiking back, and one of the rides we get... Um, brings us to um, Fort Dix, and um, some uh, soldiers smuggled us into the barracks. The barracks, so we spent the night in a barracks, yeah. <laughs> Perfectly safe, and then just went out yeah. and were hitchhiking the next day. But what did you start to ask? What question well, did I mean, did, isn't that the way all record companies start? Sure sounds yeah. like it to me. <laughs> what I'm curious about is what on earth was your fiancé doing this entire time? Well, by then she she was a nice Jewish boy. He was a nice Jewish boy. No, yeah, Ken, because that's right. she came to live with you uh, to to live in Ithaca, yeah. expecting that you guys were going to get married. So we broke up during my um, junior year at Clark, and Ken was supposed to be finishing up his doctorate in the coursework and marrying Judy Lubarsky. And I, um, so I kind of figured that would be, that would be it. And I was, you know, just, I loved my schoolwork and all of that. And (laughs) not even sticking to the contract. It was just, you know, that was kind of the way it was. Um, And, but we both realized that we had stronger feelings than that. And so, and things didn't work out between Judy and Ken. And so. Shocker, right? (laughs) (laughs) I don't even know that she really existed. Engaged. Engaged. <laughs> it was never, never a ring. <laughs> yeah, you, you told me that thing about the lavalier, though. 
I'd never heard of such a term. He, he'd given her a lavalier, so I it have? meant that they were Sorry, pinned. I don't know what a lavalier it, they is. Were, they were pinned, which meant they were engaged to oh. be engaged, apparently. I've never heard no. that one. Of course I, I think he's making I that up. I have, no, she did. <laughs> no, 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 you did. Because otherwise I would never have known. There was That's one of the things that was so different. You can't make that up. Be, no, no, <laughs> she exactly did. Not. She did. She, she reads a lot. <laughs> Yes, that's right. I have no imagination. That's in it's some just Russian that I, novel. Just that I read a lot. Yeah, yeah. But no, but it, it is true that um, uh, you made me lose my train of thought there. That's the that's part time. of that's part of the difference between. Um, so if I mention that for years, it's quite different when Ken and Bill were in college as opposed to when I was in college. Like this whole business with dating, we didn't do that when I was in college. If you liked someone, you had a relationship with them. And if it worked out fine, and if it didn't work out, you moved you, on. You, yeah. when, when, we right. were, when we were in college, uh, meaning Bill and I, it's a big four um, year. D- it's a huge <laughs> difference. Girl, girls huge were only difference. allowed in the dorms on the weekend, and it was eleven o'clock, um, I think, on a Friday, and probably midnight or one. And if you had a girl in the room, you couldn't close the door all the way. You had to have like a towel in the door or something like that. And it was like a couple years later. Oh, and then um, the uh, women always would have to have their, their feet on the floor. That was part of the part of the ruling. And that was changing just about the year that I was like 1967 or so. I graduated in 66 from high school. So 66, 67, 68 is, is around the time that colleges were changing a lot of the what were called parietal laws, the in loco parentis thing. Of course, now there is no in loco parentis. College students are considered to be adults. They, even if your parents are paying for school, you don't even have to show your parents your grades. Oh. Um, which was the opposite of the way it was back in the yeah. the time that we were in college. And to give you an idea of how things had changed, in um, a class, I think it was on marriage and the family, Mary and I sort of did a panel on living together before being married. It was that unusual. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I really, frankly, um, didn't believe in marriage. So I was not somebody who wanted to do that. I didn't see spending my life that way. You turned around, though, didn't you? No, never really did. I got married once, and I think I was right in the beginning. Okay. Yeah. I'm perfectly happy with that. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Man, I didn't see that coming. Did you, David? (laughs) (laughs) I'm uh, really glad I sat in on that. (laughs) Anything else you want to tell me about? And feel free to follow up with any questions after When when are you going to finish this thing? (laughs) After you think about it, David, you know, really, any uh, things, you know, that you need to follow up? Of course, Uh, of course. I I think he's got a few ideas. (laughs) (laughs) But it was a very different time back then, you know. And um, some people sort of continued in line with that, and some people didn't. And I think that I did in my own way, even though, you know, as a mother, I had to obviously be a different kind of person from the person who was as reckless and adventurous as as you are when you're 
um, when you're during those formative years. But yes, yeah, so Ken and I, during those formative years, were a couple, did break up um, after Rounder was about two years old, um, but we're continuing to live in the same house um, and work together. And it wasn't always easy, um, but we frankly had enough things in common from the music and stuff that uh, it kind of saw us through that and eventually... Um, yeah, for another 49 years yeah, or so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Do you ever feel like the hustle and bustle of life keeps you from accomplishing your goals and staying on track? Have you ever felt exhausted at the end of the day, but yet feel like you've accomplished nothing? Help focus on your goals and stay on track with a self-journal from Best Self Co. Whether you're starting your own business, a college student, or you're just feeling overwhelmed with day-to-day -day life, the self-journal is packed with tools to help you get more done. With features including daily planning, a 13-week roadmap for your goals, inspirational quotes, daily and weekly habit tracking, and a place to record morning and evening gratitude. Best Self Co. offers a line of productivity tools to help you accomplish more. Check out all of their products at bestself.co. Use code BLUEGRASS to save 15% off of your first purchase. That's bestself.co, code BLUEGRASS to save 15% off your first purchase. What were some ways that, you know, the three of you are very unique and uh, independent figures. How? Do, what were some aspects of the three of yours' personalities? Like, what personality-wise, what did the three of you bring to the table that helped make Rounder work for so many years? I want to. I want to go back and do one more story. Yeah, sure. lay it on us. Okay. Bill. Bill was teaching um, political science or government. I think it might have been at uh, Lowell Tech, which uh, since has become part of the. University of Massachusetts at, at Lowell. And um, he mentioned that um, there was a job opening in the psychology department. And I applied and got the job. And I had um, two courses, basically, that I was teaching, um, Psych 101. And then I was teaching um, sort of a, a Psych 101 in the evening for people who were um, had either graduated and were coming back for extra credits for their job um, or for other reasons. So I had a, an older class. And um, one, one night um, we learned that Jethro Tull was playing on campus. And we were just about up to the section on adolescent psychology. So I suggested that we go over to where the concert was on campus and that we look at how people were dressed, how they were acting, um, and then come back and talk about it afterwards. And a number of my students talk their way in. They say, I'm in Mr. Irwin's psychology class, and they talk their way in. And we all came back, and we had the best class of the entire year. The next morning, I had called from the president, the dean, and one other person. I hadn't gotten permission for a class trip. If anything had happened to any of our students, 
And at the end of the semester, they said that they didn't have any more money for me. And um, funny how they that worked buy, out. <laughs> they, they had to buy some additional desks. And uh, that's how I became the first um, full time rounder employee. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Thanks a lot, Jethro Tull. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Never was a big flute fan. <laughs> I wonder what Bill Monroe would have said if he was a rock and roll. He said, that, that, that ain't no part of, of rock and roll. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, you know, we said that the three of you didn't didn't really have any business experience, didn't really have any, you know, on the surface, any skills that you would think would make you qualified or equipped to start a record label, what were some things that your backgrounds uh, did provide that, uh, or personalities or backgrounds that that you could each individually bring to the table that that helped make it work? I think, you know, we all, um, we all really enjoyed music. The musicians that we had seen um, seemed like really nice people. We we weren't the type um, types that went up and spoke to people, even though we would have um, liked to. But um, we were, you know, we were big big fans, and we loved the music, and um, we liked the idea. We were all um, all had education. We um, we all had um, the ability to talk to people, um, and uh, we we knew people in the field. Like I mentioned, we knew uh, Doug Parker, who um, designed things. We knew uh, a number of um, ethnomusicologists and and other music people who were really knowledgeable about the music. Um, repeat the question yeah. now that Marion's back. Um, yeah. Your guys' person, you know, backgrounds wouldn't scream qualified or equipped to start a <laughs> to start a record label. What were some things about your backgrounds and your personalities that you each individually could bring to the table that you know oh, could make it work? Yeah, you yeah. know, yeah. Um, not very much, really. <laughs> <laughs> no, because I, um, I, I, I appreciate what Ken said in terms of, you know, we knew a couple of contacts, um, but we really didn't quote unquote know people. We went out of our way. So, in fact, Bill started corresponding with people like Mike Seeger, for example. And then eventually we would go and visit Mike, and he would say, well, you know, I don't, I'm working on thus and such. I don't really have any tapes right, you know, uh, but did you ever think about doing a record with so-and-so? And then one thing would lead to another. But in turn, I, 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 and we kind of grew up um, learning how to do this. So it's not like we had anything that would particularly make it sound like we were going to be a record company. 
Um, we thought that there was a void. We thought if we put out the records that hopefully we'd be able to sell enough that, uh, that we would break even. And then as we went along, we didn't think of ourselves as, well, Bill, you'll do business affairs and Ken, you'll become um, the, a producer and A&R person and Marion, you'll work on publicity and promotion and artist relations or anything like that. In fact, in the beginning, we hoped that all three of us would be able to do everything, but we had no idea what, what it, it would actually take to be a record company. So therefore, we had that illusion that we could do that. So we kind of thought we could do something, but we didn't really know what that entailed at that point. And then eventually what happened is that is what, um, is things did evolve. But for a long time, for example, we did all three of us pick orders and ship out records and stuff like that. But at the same time, we were not doing any publicity, not doing any promotion. We had like a one-page contract. So we had to learn all of these things as we went along. And then I think it was four years after we started that we started paying ourselves for the first time. $240 a month, and that was enough to cover the very, very small mortgage we had at the property on Willow Avenue where we both worked and lived. Um, and that, you know, was enough because we got to go to shows for free wow. and so forth. So, but, and then at that point we realized that, okay, if we're going to pay ourselves something, we're also going to have to start paying into things like social security. We're going to need to start thinking about things like health insurance and so forth. So then we hired somebody to do that who worked for a lot of the local nonprofits and uh, mostly movement, meaning political yeah, yeah. organizations uh, in the Cambridge area and got things set up properly. So we got to learn about all of that stuff. And it's true that we had been, Bill had been quite good about keeping, well, much better than we were, but we were able to do this too, um, just sort of uh, keeping lists of money in and money out. And but But to show you how naive we were, we actually paid for all of the records that we distributed up front when we got them. And therefore, when we went to the bank, the bank said, well, you don't have any credit. <laughs> so then we realized that we should actually get them and wait and pay for them when they need to be paid. And, and so and those are the kinds yeah, of yeah. simple things that I'm, most anybody who's gone to high school these days would know how to do, but we didn't because we went to, you know, we were liberal arts, humanities majors in college who knew nothing about that kind of stuff. You know, I should, should go back a little bit there in terms of distribution. When we got our first two records um, in uh, October of 1970, um, we didn't know anything about distribution. We hadn't even really right. thought about that. There was a distributor in town called Riverboat, and they distributed Rebel and County and Arhuli and Delmark. Again, the a, a broader range of, and Tacoma was very important. And so when we got our first two records, we went over to um, Dave Wilson, who ran Riverboat, who we had known because he um, was the editor of Broadside Magazine. And we brought our first, our, our records, and um, he wasn't really interested. Well, I guess first we went to, to the Harvard Coop, 
um, which was the big record store in town. And we brought the two records and they said, uh, you know, get a distributor. So we went to Riverboat and they turned us down. And so we're thinking, here we have all these records, you know, 500 feet, what are we going to do? And um, so we thought, okay, need a distributor, we'll become a distributor. So we contacted American Heritage, which had the Dan Crary and the two um, um, records with... um, well, what else? It was before, before, before Newgrass. It was the Bluegrass Alliance. Bluegrass Alliance. They yeah, the two Bluegrass Alliance. Uh, Crary was twenty-seven, and I think uh, Newgrass was thirty or something like that. But then, you know, there were a few. And then uh, we re- we knew that there was another Leo Kotke record on Old Oblivion Records, and we contacted a few other small labels and went back to the Harvard Coop. And said we're a distributor, and these are the you know six labels that we're distributing. And um, we what we had done is we had written to these um, labels that Riverboat hadn't been interested in, and said we're a distributor in the Boston area. We'd like to carry your records, and they told us how much they were. And as Marion said, we paid in advance, and then came back, and we became a distributor. And uh, we continued to. Um, built up the distributorship, and we had a number of labels, but none of the big ones. And then um, one day we got a call from the Harvard Coop, and a major distributor in the New York area, uh, Stanley Lewis, had gone out of business, and the Harvard Coop had bought all their records, I think, for a dollar apiece. And uh, they called up and said, you know, we can't use all these. Um, do you want to buy them? I think they bought them for 50 cents each. And so they sold them to us for a dollar. And so overnight, we had Tacoma Records and Arhuli and Rebel and County, Yazoo. Um, and so we, um, we contacted the, um, those labels and said, well, we have all your records except for these few. And most of them were were furious because they, they had sold them to the distributor and hadn't gotten paid for them. And here we are wanting to be their distributor. And, and in certain instances, a, a competing label who is now wanting to distribute their competitor's records. So I can understand some trepidation during some of those phone calls. Totally. Yeah. 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 It was it was quite interesting. So all of them agreed. We um, we shipped back some that we had too many and ordered more, and um, in most cases became one of their best distributors and continued to add on. And uh, when we finally stopped distributing, um, decades later, we had up to four hundred labels that we were wow. distributing. That's amazing. And we were we became a major distributor um, and back when there was independent. Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah. And thanks to um, a local chain, um, Record Bar, um, which started out, and I think we had like five records when they had five stores, and they built up to about 100, um, and we were their di- main distributor for Bluegrass. And any time a new record came in on Old Homestead or American Heritage or Rebel or County, we were allowed to just add it to their order. 
That's awesome. And um, so we became a major, you know, a, a major distributor for most of the bluegrass and blues and Cajun and Zydeco. Major um, independent distributor. Yeah. And, and yeah. when Ken, I don't know if this is, is during your time or not, Daniel, but uh, Record Bar, when Ken says local, it's down here. Record Bar started in North based, Carolina. Think, yeah. Oh, okay. And it grew to a chain of, I don't know, some hundred plus stores. Yeah. yeah. At the height of, you know, actually retail, record Independent retail. record stores, yeah. Well, yeah. And yeah. actually record retail stores. I yeah. mean, right. When there were actually record stores back in the old days. Yeah. How the, uh, you yeah, know. Do you have to tell your people about record stores? <laughs> no. <laughs> well, and, and the other thing before we leave the distribution thing, just one last thing is uh, not only did we sort of come in with a bang with the, the Stanley Lewis purchase from the Harvard Coop that Ken talked about, but, you know, that continued to, not that, but um, what it represented continued to be something that was a factor because we were able to put out many, many more records than a lot of other um, independent labels doing our type of music would be able to put out in part because we were a distributor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On those records, we made far less than on our own records, but since it was all one company, we had the um, the cash flow yeah, yeah. to be able to finance our own records. Yes, absolutely. Through those records that we were distributing, so a lot. So Bruce Iglauer of Alligator Records, for example, would say, "Oh, this isn't fair," or you, you know, you guys are, you know, a distributor and you're able to put out more records because you have more cash flow than anybody who's just putting out their own records, <laughs> and that's not right or something. But on the other hand, we were one of his best distributors too. Yeah. So it sort of worked for a long time, and it was a decades-long experience. And interestingly, yeah. we were one of um, Concord Records' earliest and best distributors. Right. Who who would end up uh, acquiring Rounder yes. in, what, 2010 uh, Yes, Ish? in a slow close. Yeah. It started around 2010 and ended yeah. around 2015, yeah. yeah. Um, what were some ways that your, counter, your counterculture lifestyles and, and attitudes impacted the way Rounder conducted business? Hmm. Well, I think, uh, I mean, one we've already talked about, which is that we knew so little about business because we were so countercultural, that we paid for things in advance, therefore didn't have any credit, therefore had no relationship with a bank. Not that banks have ever been known for, for being particularly good with either record companies uh, book publishing companies um, because the margins are crazy. Well, not yeah, only the yeah. margins are crazy, but everything can be returned from the re- from retail stores for 100 um, percent um, refunds. So, in other words, is that actually consignment or is that sold? So banks don't understand that. But um, so you, I mean, I think that our counterculture background helped us a lot in terms of just sort of like, okay, well, this doesn't work, so we'll have to do that, and sort of basically trying to make a model that would allow us to do it. So in other words, flying by the seat of your pants was what kind of what we had to do. Business plan had two words: wing it. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, you, you, sometimes you hear the phrase, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And it seems like if anything, that was a, a, a big positive for you guys. It, it was in, in a number of respects. Uh, I remember going, well, 
I guess we're getting ahead. But um, at one point, we helped um, when 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 we were just starting out distribution. We didn't have many distributors, and we found out about a couple. And then a few of us, a riverboat and ourselves and a distributor in Minneapolis called Aiden and Delphi distributors in the Washington, D.C. area, um, decided to try to form an organization for independent distributors. And we decided to meet in uh, Chicago uh, around the time of the Chicago um, Folk Festival. And we all went out there, and there were um, probably six or seven, I'm not quite sure, or, or, or Waka from the um, state of Washington? I think so. Yeah. Um, and we talked about the issues um, dealing with um, with independence and stores and territories and all issues that were you know related to the business of um, of distributors independent distributors and um, at that around the meeting um, we were discussing these and all of a sudden there were some knocks on the on the door and um, you know we went and checked and it was um, um, Bob Kester from Delmark, and he thought that we were conspiring against the labels. And he had uh, with him a, a young person who was um, working with him, and they kept knocking, and finally we let them in, and then the other person was a young guy named um, 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 Bruce, Iglauer, Bruce, Bruce Iglauer, who later became the founder of Alligator Records. And uh, they came in, and so we ended up um, having our organization, NAIRD, National Association of Independent Record Distributors, also have manufacturers so that we would be dealing so with the common issues. And um, told you that to tell you this, that when I went to the meetings of NAIRD, I would bring along a little notebook, much smaller than yours, you know, just, I don't know what it would be, um, f- five by, by three, one yeah, of those yeah. little notepads. And in each, each page, I had a question. Um, where do you get your, um, your records pressed? How much um, do, does it cost? Um, what kind of, what's your minimum quantity? And then we'd have questions, the same thing about record jackets. Where do you get them? And so, you know, we would be asking all these people. And that was um, a part of the not knowing anything and, and realizing that and knowing in many cases where we could get the answers. Yeah. And so we were, you know, we were the, the new kids on the block asking all these questions and, you know, being absolutely straightforward that we didn't know and that we, you know, we needed these people's help. But at the same time, I mean, Ken is sort of um, downplaying our role, though. We were playing a role 
the same as they were of actually forming this organization. Yeah. So in mm-hmm. fact, we were, you know, we were doing this obviously in our own. You were a team interest, player, yeah. though. But we yeah. were also. It was going to sort of strengthen the entire field, and um, rising tide lifts all ships. Yeah. 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 Exactly. And we also asked um, people to um, bring to these meetings their various paperwork. So what do your invoices look like? Um, what, you know, what are your packing slips like? You know, just all kinds so we could try to learn more and try to be more, um, you know, work in ways that were more efficient than we were working and where we had some kind of system share that with other people. Kind of like the boring nuts and bolts kinds yeah. of things, but that yeah. are essential in, in, in everyday stuff. I mean, it's it's not always all that exciting, as you, as you know. Especially you know. if you're going to run an efficient business, it's some of those little things yes, that make exactly. the biggest difference. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's a great example of, it's a lesson that I, I, hopefully we all learn as we get older, that sometimes it's not about what you know, it's about knowing where to go to get the answer. You know, some some of the smartest people that I know and I enjoy being around aren't necessarily people that know everything, but they know where to go to find the answer. And sometimes that's the, that's the most that's the most important thing yeah. to know. Yeah, yeah and we didn't have the Google machine back yeah. then. <laughs> we didn't have cell phones back yeah. then. We didn't have, you know, computers or uh, the internet back then. But and the other thing too is is and and I used to say this a lot back then. I think I might have mentioned this yesterday when I was talking with a couple of folks. But um, it, it, I, people would sometimes ask us in the South, well, where do you get your records manufactured? And say, in Phoenix, Arizona. And the covers are made on Long Island. And, you know, the studios are wherever the artist feels comfortable or the recording situation, whatever. In other words, that it, 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 you have to draw together resources from a lot of different places to have the final product. That it's never just, you know, from one place. Yeah. And that it's a good example of interdependence and working together. Um, and, it, it, you know, it's as true now as it was back then. It, it's so amazing, too, learning about <laughs> the way that your guys' record label ran and operated. And like you just said, you just you just rattle, rattle off at least three or four different locations where <laughs> things happened. And, you know, I'm from southwestern Ohio, so I'm familiar with King Records. Yep. And Sid Nathan, it was kind of the exact opposite. Yep. Everything happened in the same yep. building. Yep. And it, I think it's cool how just because things are different doesn't mean that one's better or worse. There's there's different ways to go about doing things, and what works for you doesn't always work for me, and that's okay sometimes. You know? well, well, the other thing is that, of course, Sid Nathan was of another generation from Absolutely. Us, and therefore, he could own all of that stuff. Absolutely. Whereas here we were, start three kids out of college, no business experience. The opposite of the Sid Nathans Absolutely. of the world. Um, so, it, I mean, obviously that model wouldn't have worked for us. Yeah. And on the other hand, we were from such a completely different world that the business um, sort of skills, resources, things that we were able to put together we, would sometimes lead us to being um, accused of being, quote unquote, hippie capitalists. <laughs> um, and that was not considered a good thing, I yeah. can assure you. And um, 
we didn't like it ourselves all that much either. But at the same time, we did what we, you know, what we sort of had to do in a pragmatic way to make this whole thing work. Yeah. And it grew and and um, and thrived, and as Ken said, became one of the major for the Northeast, and at that time, um, back in those days of record stores, a third of all the records sold in the United States were sold from New England down to Washington, D.C. Wow. Yeah, a big change now, yeah. obviously. Yeah. And at some point, yeah. we, um, we grew that distribution to the point where we um, were also had a salesperson in Washington, D.C., and largely controlled that area for our types of music. We bought a distributorship in, um, in New York, and we bought one in Kansas City. And we also later and then hired salespeople the, in yeah. each of those markets. Yeah. In those yeah. in those markets. Yeah. Yeah. So, in other words, if we didn't have someone to distribute our records in there, then we sort of had to kind of create something. Hi, guys. Adam from Samson's Hair Care here. I wanted to let you know about a new product we've released called Texture Powder. You just sprinkle it in, work it into your roots, and it provides you with volume and hold and texture while leaving your hair looking natural. Give it a shot. Use the code BLUEGRASS on our website to save 10% off your total. By the, by the end of the 1970s, you guys had grown rapidly. And you mentioned, you know, the hippie capitalist no. thing there, not you. Uh, from, from what I've heard, if you guys are willing to talk about it, uh, a huge challenge that you guys faced as this business grew so rapidly um, is the decision that some of, you know, your employees wanted to unionize. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like it was a really conf- conflicting time. And, and one of the, one of the biggest, you know, hurdles you guys had to cross that time, how, what was that chapter in the rounder story like? And, and how did, how did that take place? I'll, I'll start and can, cause Ken can think about it, but, um, and it's not a canned answer from any of us and every one of the three of us would have a different answer to okay. it. Um, it was extremely complicated. It was not something, uh, that any of us felt good about. Um, we, um, and it's all, uh, it, and it's something that we all dealt with slightly differently. Yeah. Um, as things evolved, and I'll come back to the beginning, um, Bill wound up being the person who, as the primary business affairs person until John Verant came on board in the early 1990s, um, Bill wound up being the person dealing with the union in terms of negotiating the contract. And frankly, I think, <clears throat> speaking for myself, there's no question that I just really kind of withdrew from the whole process. Uh, abdicated any responsibility. Not good, not good. I'm ashamed of myself. We should have, Ken and I uh, should have stayed more involved, but at that point we were dealing more with artists and the music and kind of left more of the business affairs and um, you could say dumped it in Bill's lap, but on the other hand, he kind of... uh, I won't say he liked doing it, but he sort of rose to the challenge um, and dealt with it quite differently than perhaps we would have 
but on the other hand, he was doing it. So, but it was difficult. Um, we ourselves, if if we were to rationalize our position, we were already paying higher wages, better health benefits than, uh, frankly, the union ultimately negotiated. And we did check with other record companies and other, other distribution companies to see what they paid employees and what their benefits were. So <clears throat> we, from our point of view, felt, well, you know, but on the other hand, looking at it from the point of view of the people who worked for us, they felt that we were increasingly absent because we were more and more involved with George Thorogood and the destroyers and not around the warehouse as much. And so from their point of view, they're doing all this work and what guarantee is there that we might not just sort of move the whole company someplace else or just decide to do something because we had all these opportunities that, that they didn't necessarily have. Mm -hmm. And so therefore they felt, so, so in other words, I understand their point of view and over the years I've come to um, you know, feel more and more that um, it was really not a, I mean, it was not well, we didn't handle it well. We were, when we started out, we were um, anti-profit, and we actually had an anti-profit statement. And um, as time went on, we heard from um, a number of the other labels who felt that we were, you know, in some way diminishing them. Um, you know, because they were, I mean, I, 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 w I was shocked when I went to visit Tacoma Records and found out they were making $10,000 a year. And I thought that was, you know, outrageous. Um, I sort of lost my train there, but um, I did. But it was during the time that we were still paying ourselves $240 yep. a month. Yeah. So Ken's making that yep. comparison. Of course, on the other hand, as the owners of the company and therefore ultimately the owner of the masters and having the company pay for um, uh, travel expenses and stuff like that, yeah. not that we did anything that was lavish. Yeah. We didn't even stay at hotels for the most yeah. part or motels or whatever. Um, but nonetheless, we did have access to that as the owners of the company. Um, so, I mean, it, it, there's, you can't be a business in a capitalist world without being a business. Yeah. And so we increasingly had to accept that, make those compromises, and we did. How was that a learning experience for you guys? You know, when you started, you're these uh, fresh, idealistic hippies out of college and then coming to some of those conclusions that, okay, if we're going to run a business, you know, that there's some, maybe we need to reevaluate the pie in the sky ideas that maybe we, we had when we first started. Um, what, what were, how were some ways that you, you dealt with some of those, those changes in, in what your perceptions were when you first got into the business? My, my perspective really didn't change all that much. Okay. I actually believe that society is wrong okay. and that my pie in the sky isn't pie in the sky, but we live in the world that we live in. So for the company to be able to, to grow and, be healthy, we had to make those compromises. So, you know, it's it's like the, I mean, it's, you know, a mark of maturity is being able to hold two contradictory thoughts in your mind at the same time. 
and so that's the way it was for me. Um, but it's probably it was probably different for each one of us, um, and and Ken can answer that you know in his way, and Bill would probably answer it in his way. But yeah, we we <laughs> never we never wanted to be bosses. You know, the when we started out, um, it was a collective, it was the Rounder Collective, and we didn't really envision it getting bigger the way that that it did and we um at least i think mary and i feel that we were um we were not ownerly and and good bosses in that we were we worked hard we were um you know we thought we would be leading by example and that others would you know, would would follow in, and we. I think when you asked earlier about the lack of training, I think probably one of the biggest failings was that we didn't have that part of the business experience. That early on we could just um, succeed by working longer hours by learning certain things, but um, we didn't have management skills. And that's not something that, uh, you know, working 12 hours a day is really going right. to change, yeah, yeah, you know? Yeah. yeah. And, you know, later on, um, we did get um, a person who we put in as um as president, so that we could do the things that we wanted to do without having to deal with the hiring and the firing and all the, you know, the things that management would do. Yeah. Wow, this is, this is fascinating. Um, so you guys started in 1970. Yeah. You guys put out your first bluegrass album was with Joe Val, right? First bluegrass record, yeah. And that was what, in 71? Yes. And in just a few short years, um, you start signing some great bluegrass talent. What were some ways that you guys, you, you mentioned earlier, uh, you know, uh, putting an emphasis on better graphic design and liner notes. What were some other ways that you guys sought to be different than other bluegrass record labels that were popular at that time? Independent bluegrass labels. And this, and I think it's, and Ken is always, in my opinion, far too modest about this, mm-hmm. in terms of the production values in the studio. I think, I think it's entirely fair to say, I will say it, Ken will never say it, that he had a, an aesthetic, um, and it was based on great bluegrass records of the past, but how to make them today. And so Ken gave a real consistency to any of the projects that he was involved in. So I think, in fact, even the sound. And Ken, as, 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 as any of us would know from talking to bluegrass musicians, including Dudley Connell, you know, Ken was the world's slowest person because he's very meticulous about everything from mixing to mastering and so forth. So between sound, liner notes, um, graphics, um, I think that, that that's a big part of it. Um, we also did want to sort of bring bluegrass to a wider audience. Um, how we were going to achieve that, God only knows. But I, th- I, th- 
I think we believed that we could do it um, by essentially having bluegrass be like any of the other records um, that we were doing. In other words, we'd service them to the principal music writer at, at the Times or at the News and Observer or, you know, the in Nashville, whatever the, the paper was, and that we would work better with artists on uh, touring and so forth. We were kind of a little ahead of the curve on all of that as well. Um, but, you know, and you probably know the J.D. Crow story. Yes. But I, I, I don't think that your question was appropriate. Okay. Um, I don't think that we were trying to to better anybody. I think uh, one of one of the um, important conversations we had um, over the years, and there were several. One was with um, the um, noted uh, folklorist um, activist Archie Green. And uh, we were talking with him um, at the Smithsonian Folklife Festival one year, and we were talking about what we were doing. And he said, if you're going to do something alternative, you have to do it at least as well or better than what other people were doing. And so we were trying to do the best that we could. We weren't trying to be better or to do something different particularly than than anybody else um you weren't you weren't re you weren't trying to be reactionary you were trying to be proactive in your approach being representative of the the quality and care that you thought the music deserved not necessarily as a reaction to what someone else was doing Right, and not only that, don't forget that all of those labels like Dave, the work that Dave Freeman was doing and so forth, we loved that stuff. Yeah. So it's not like we were doing it because we thought we could be better. Yeah. We were just doing what we could um, within our own world. But yes, Ken, point yeah. well taken. Yeah, thank you, thank you. And one thing I love about what you said, Marion, about, you know, not not changing the standards for bluegrass based off of the yeah. other genres was one of the, and Ken's probably heard me say this before a saying I can't stand that I absolutely loathe is when people say, well, that's good enough for bluegrass. Yeah. Well, if it's not good enough for anybody else, why right. should it be good enough for us? We should, you know, our music is, uh, is worthy of having the highest absolutely. quality standards. And so I, that's one thing I, I love that you said that, you know, if, if this quality standard is what everyone else has, why should we not expect the same level, whether it's audio quality, graphic design, liner notes, um, distribution, I mean, whatever, um, for this genre music? Yep. So, yep. And with, with liner notes, we were avid readers. Um, we wanted to learn and, you know, in a somewhat analogous way to my father wanting to learn about something and becoming an expert. We didn't know about that much about Snuffy Jenkins and Pappy Sherrill. We didn't know that much about the roots of, of Joe Val or, you know, any of the other people. Or the record labels yeah. of the early days of bluegrass yeah. or yeah. whatever. Yeah. 
we, we just wanted to know, and we spent lots of time reading notes, and uh, one of the problems with some of our workers in later years was they would be picking orders, and they would stop and, and read the liner notes as well. They'd be working and start reading the liner notes as well. <laughs> yeah, they'd be reading liner notes as well. But um, it, it was something that, um, that we cared about, you know, later on, um, when other people were cutting back, we we continued um, with liner notes, and it was really um, a real um, passion of mine in dealing with a lot of artists and managers who didn't see them as being as important as we did. And I would say that you know it is something that um, helps bond the person reading it to the music. It would give DJs who didn't know that much about the music, you know, if they could talk about a record for 30 seconds more or 45 seconds more because they had good liner notes, it would make a difference. Um, there are a lot of reviewers um, who don't know that much about an artist and we would often see from certain writers parts of our liner notes lifted, which wouldn't have happened if we didn't have the liner notes, yeah. but it gave them proper context and and more information. So, And, and I was always really happy. Like, for example, there was one magazine that, that, that just told me that, um, oh, I love getting your press releases. I can just print those. And and yeah. that, and they did, yeah. <laughs> and that worked. But the other thing I was going to say is, is we all, I mean, as Ken said, we all love to read. We love liner notes, and I always considered that writers are part of the community also, and I like having um, writers who are the quality of the musicians. You know how a lot of people, and I can understand this, where musicians will say, well, my uncle so-and-so, you know, really loves the band and they want to write something. And it's like, yeah, okay, that's, you know, but we always tried to not only discourage that, but really find people that we thought were really good writers to do the liner notes. And I'm so glad that, you know, as we look back on 51 years of Rounder Records, that we have, though, that plethora of good writing about these records because mm -hmm. you know as someone who wasn't around when some of these records first came out as some you know when I was in college or getting into radio and getting into writing I wanted to you know do more than just listen to the record and kind of deep dive and kind of do some homework and research the first the first and most readily available resource you're going to have mm -hmm. about a record is the liner notes yep. is reading that jacket that's the that's the that's the most accessible and it, it it's also cool because when you go back decades later and read the notes for a particular record and can see okay what was the context in which this record was released originally you're going to get yeah. more out of that than going back and reading an old review at the time. That was just someone's opinion about it. Like, what was the artist thinking? Yeah. What was what was what made this record tick as to why it was why it was released? Yeah. Or, or there's a million reasons why the liner notes would be the first place you would start. Yeah. Now, I, I'm like you guys. I'm I'm a nerd for liner notes of the rounder catalog. So, I mean, we're talking. Thousands. Thousands of albums. What are some of your personal favorite bluegrass album liner notes? You know, and it's not, uh, uh, I mean, I could just say uh, bluegrass album liner notes, but it's true often. I mean, for example, 
um, that first J.D. Crow one, I liked the fact that we had a double set of line yeah. outs. Because John, and Hartford. John Hartford were so kind of out there, and, and, and this is musician speak, and it was like perfect for the music. And then Jax, of course, put everything much more in... Uh, the context of um, you, you know the, of the history, yeah. And so I really liked that pairing. I've always liked things like that. But there are so many that it's just hard to to pick one out. Can uh, can you think of any particular? That's ones? a great. That's a great one, Marion. Isn't it? That's yeah. a great one. It is because yeah. it's such. I mean, and we use, we did that on some other records too, like the. Um, I think the professor, the, uh, Professor Longhair, it was like uh, uh, recordings that were done at Bearsville and had not been released ever, um, and decades before we released them, and, and actually was was a Grammy Award winner in the blues category in the 1980s. And Quint Davis, who was the founder of the uh, Jazz Festival, and Ashley Kahn, who has written some really important jazz books, and and I did three different things all on the back. You That's know, cool. Sort of, it is, and because it's sort of like then every, each you get three different perspectives. You get a sense of this must be some really important music. All of these people have things to say about yeah. it that are um, so different, and yet would um, be understood in different ways by different people. Yeah. Ken, do you have any any personal? I can I can I can almost hear his gears turning. Yes, <laughs> I, I know, and I was thinking the same thing, and that's the reason I say no, that. I think but. it's my stomach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we uh, might have to pause and and do that shortly. But um, I, there there really and truly are so many that it's hard to um, it's hard to pick one out. Um, I really liked Richard Harrington's recent notes on the seldom scene. Yeah. They were extremely well written. Yep. I mean, we've tried to get good liner notes on everything. And, yeah, yeah. And sometimes we get, you know, help. Um, interestingly, I really liked uh, David Davis's liner notes on um, on his most recent record, on uh, the War River Boys, his... Um, you know, tribute to Charlie Poole. They think they're um, not, um, it's that they're so heartfelt and they're, they're so straight ahead. Yeah. Um, you know, we could go back and, and go through dozens. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the, the 0044 notes yeah. and Hart, Hartford's, the phrase he uses about the space between the notes, mm-hmm. you can't count how many times, probably just this week, that phrase is going to come up in conversation yes. somewhere in the convention yeah. center. It, I mean, 45 years yeah. later, that is is one of the most quoted phrases in yeah. the r- written word of bluegrass music yeah. is the space between the notes. You, yeah. you'll, I guarantee you, I can't. If we took the time to sit on the workshop stage that they're going to be having on Friday and Saturday, that'll probably get brought up, you know, a dozen times just this weekend. Part one of my interview with Ken and Marion from Rounder Records. If you're in Raleigh this week, be sure to uh, join myself 
uh, Ken Irwin, Marion Leighton Levy, the third rounder founder, Bill Nowlin of the Bluegrass Music Hall of Fame, and David Manconi of uh, Oh, Didn't They Ramble. Uh, we'll be talking about the upcoming book and talking uh, about rounder records and their impact on bluegrass music Wednesday morning uh, here at IBMA's World of Bluegrass. Hope to see you there. Be sure to uh, subscribe to the Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast. Find us on Facebook and Instagram. And as always, support our sponsors like Samson's Hair Care. Visit them at samsonshaircare.com. Use code BLUEGRASS to save on your first purchase. Thanks so much. And until next time, we hear part two of our conversation with Ken Irwin and Marion Leighton Levy. Thanks for joining us on Walls of Time.